Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Briefly, is what I mentioned before, the idea of orthodoxy and what I call its slide to the right. Um, and whatever I don't manage to say tonight, and there'll be most of what I have to say, I won't be able to say tonight, given this uh, short, of time, short amount of time that we have. Uh, but the good news is that there's a book, as the rabbi mentioned, that you can read that will uh, fill in the blanks. So most of what I will say will be um, just sort of telegraphic. So um, maybe the first thing I should start with is to say that this is, um, this is a little bit of a mystery. The question of how did it happen that orthodoxy has steadily slid to the right. And uh, to explain what I mean by mystery, I want to uh, borrow from um, a, uh, a writer by the name of Gregory Treverton who talked about the difference between puzzles and mysteries. And he says that um, a puzzle uh, is, uh, when, you, when you confront the puzzle, it's because you don't have sufficient information. There's something missing. And if you get that missing information, it's like the missing piece. You plug it in and you've got the solution to the puzzle. Mysteries are not like puzzles. Mysteries require judgments. They require an assessment of uncertainty. Uh, the hard part is not that we have too little. Sometimes the hard part uh, is that we have too much information or we have the wrong information or we can't put all the things together. So if things go wrong with a puzzle, of course, um, it's because we have the wrong piece or we put it in the wrong way. Uh, but mysteries are much murkier because sometimes the information we've been given is inadequate. Or sometimes uh, we aren't very smart about making choices or making sense out of what we've been given. And sometimes the question itself is not answerable. Puzzles, we know, can come to very satisfying solutions. You got it all, you put all those pieces together, and there it is, and you, you don't even want to take it apart. You're so happy you put it all together. But mysteries sometimes don't come to satisfactory solutions. I say this because a lot of what we know about orthodoxy, at least in America, seems like putting together the puzzle. We sort of have all the parts, and we can fit them all in and talk about this piece and that piece and what happened here, what happened there, and how do we get to where we are today? Some of it is a mystery. How did it happen that it went exactly this way? How do we account for these things? Just to give you one example, I mean, one of the, one of the things about orthodoxy in America is it really, it has these two periods. One is at the very beginnings of Jews coming to America, and particularly the uh, Eastern European Jews are coming, the Russians are 
uh, coming in, in the period between 1880 and the First World War. And a lot of those people who came, they, they were supposedly Orthodox, but as soon as they got here, they pretty much dropped it because uh, the orthodoxy that they came with was something that was imposed upon them. They really didn't embrace it that much. And when they came to America, you know, they all said something we've, I'm sure, heard many times. America's different. And in America, you have, to, you have to change. And then there's a second phase of orthodoxy. And that second phase of orthodoxy uh, comes after the Holocaust. Uh, and those are the Orthodox Jews who, by and large, stayed behind because they were told by their leaders, don't go to the land of promise because Jews might survive there, but Judaism will not. And they also were told, don't go to the promised land because, you know, the same thing. Jews might survive there, but Judaism will not. And it's, read, it's led by Zionists and socialists and, and people who are secular, and it certainly couldn't be God's plan. And, of course, we know that that advice was dead wrong. Uh, that the Orthodox Jews who stayed in Europe were easy to spot, and proportionately they took a bigger hit than anybody else. Uh, and their rabbis, many of the rabbis who gave them this advice, some of them ran away themselves. But they were wrong, because we know from the hindsight of history that Orthodoxy has done very well in the land of promise, and even better in the promised land, and that the, this, uh, these two places were places where, in fact, Orthodoxy has thrived. So the first thing we should talk about when we talk about orthodoxy in America, at least, is the triumph of orthodoxy. Orthodoxy that many people thought, you know, at the end of the war when they started coming as refugees, and I'm, I'm part of that. I'm, my family and I, my parents were Holocaust survivors. We came in, 19, I was born after the war, and we came in 1950 as refugees on DP transfer, transport boats. Good thing we came then, because we were trying to come now. We wouldn't have come. wouldn't have been able to get in. We came, and um, orthodoxy looked like it was on its last legs. You know, the people who were really running the show here were the non-orthodox Jews. They built the institutions. There were some people who were orthodox. There were a few small orthodox synagogues, but they, they were filled with old men. But in that period of time, since the post-Holocaust period, orthodoxy has grown. And really, we can talk about the triumph of orthodoxy. They've built many institutions in America, about 40% of the synagogues in America today are Orthodox. And in the New York metropolitan area, which is where I live now, and Orthodoxy is really dominant in many ways there, 57%, almost 60% of all the synagogues in the New York metropolitan area are Orthodox. Orthodox Jews in America comprise one-third of those who describe themselves as regular synagogue uh, attenders. And that number is growing in large measure because most of the other people aren't going anymore. Right? The Orthodox, in, in, in large measure, are in charge of many of the Jewish organizations. You know why? Because the people who are not Orthodox are not interested in Jewish organizations anymore. They're the heads of other things. They might be on the board of the uh, university or the symphony orchestra or the opera or whatever, or they're... they're they're not interested in those Jewish organizations. About nine in 10 of American Orthodox Jews are married to other Jews. In most cases, other Orthodox Jews. And they have lots of children. They have more children than most of the rest of the Jews. And now, even though the biggest denomination these days are what we call the nuns, right? The people who are not anything. But the second biggest is the Orthodox. And they're growing not because other people are becoming Orthodox, 
But they're growing because they're having more children than anyone else. They're marrying earlier than anyone else. And they're able to hold on to their kids because the kids haven't been leaving orthodoxy the way they did perhaps in that first generation uh, when Orthodox Jews first start coming here. So in their family lives, they have a high degree of stability with a divorce rate, which although is rising, certainly rising, but it remains far lower than any other denomination, any other group in America. In fact, uh, the truth is, when I teach the course on the family, and I'm a sociologist, I point out that these days there's only two groups that are interested in getting married anymore. Everybody else is ready to just live together. Who are the two groups that are interested in getting married? Well, one is Orthodox Jews, and the other? Gays. Gays. They're the only ones that care about getting married. <laughs> Everyone else is happy just to live together. Their birth rate remains somewhere between three and eight children per family. But when we look at the uh, so-called Haredi element, or the, what we sometimes call the ultra-Orthodox, their birth rate is you know, through, through the sky. I could, I could give you numbers from, from the census about places like Kiryas Joel, which is 99% uh, uh, Satmar Hasidim or New Square, and the numbers are through the roof. Uh, those are communities that grow every 10 years, they grow by 50%. And just to give you some sense, the state of New York in every 10 years grows by 2.9%. That's a lot of growth of orthodoxy. Uh, they are the only American Jews who are reproducing beyond the replacement level. So, you know, they don't have to do anything. They're winning in the bedroom. And the fact of the matter is that not only are they winning in that way, but as I said, if they were producing kids who then don't become Orthodox, that would be, that would be a net gain for the <coughs> Jewish community. But they're, uh, well, uh, I don't want to say it for the Jewish community because we're all part of the Jewish community. Uh, and when they get shot, we get shot. And when they get attacked, we get attacked. And the, and the world outside uh, uh, the Jewish world doesn't make big distinctions between Orthodox Jews and non-Orthodox Jews. It's just us, the insiders. We make these distinctions, right? <clears throat> the, the rest of the world says Jew, non-Jew, Jew, non-Jew. Looking at uh, one point, uh, one and a half million American Jews ages 18 to 39, Orthodox Jews comprise some 11% uh, some of the Jewish population. Among 18 to 29-year-olds, that goes up to 16%. Among Jewish children, the percentage of Orthodox is probably even higher. Put differently, the percentage of Orthodox Jews aged 18 to 19 is nearly double that of the age 30 to 39. In Lakewood, which is Lakewood, New Jersey, which is a real stronghold of Orthodoxy, non-Hasidic, non although increasingly also Hasidic, 1,700 babies were born to 5,500 local families, yielding a birth rate of 358 births per thousand women. Just to give you an idea, the overall American rate is 65 births per thousand women. In contrast with other American <coughs> Jews, most of whom are suffering demographic decline, the Orthodox are growing. As I said, they're winning in the bedroom. Uh, we know they hold on to their young. I'm not going to go through the numbers there. In, in respect of where they live, Orthodox Jews live in areas of high Orthodox Jewish density. That is, they live with other Jews. And we know one of the most important factors when you live with other Jews, what's likely to happen? 
you're going to marry other Jews. When you live in an area where there are not other Jews, when you go to school with people who are not Jewish, you're going to end up marrying in your same social class, and that's not a problem. If you're middle class, your kids are going to marry or move in with someone who's middle class. But if you're living with non-Jews, you're more likely to marry non-Jews. Orthodox Jews are not in that situation. And even when they move to areas on the periphery of the Jewish community, whether that's in Arizona or wherever, when they move to those areas, they manage to do something that few other Jews achieve. And what is it? They make those areas of Jewish scarcity flourish. They bring other Jews. In fact, that's a problem. Because sometimes when Orthodox Jews move into an area where there aren't other Orthodox Jews, their neighbors say, we don't want you here, because the next thing you know, you'll be coming here. And what's the problem with their coming there? Well, in particular in suburbs, why do people choose to live in a suburb? What brings people to a suburb, particularly Jewish people, non-Orthodox Jewish people? Housing. Housing, not so much housing. Schools, they want good schools, right? That's why most of your taxes in the suburbs are for schools. What's the problem when Orthodox Jews move into those areas? They're not interested in the schools because they're not going to go to the schools. They're going to go to private schools. They'll pay your school taxes, but it's not enough to pay the taxes for the schools because when your kids don't go to the schools, the schools start to get smaller or other people come to those schools and the level of the education is not necessarily the same level that you wanted for your kids. So many people are afraid when an Orthodox Jewish families move into a community and they build an Eruv and they want to increase and they bring more Orthodox Jews and they're always going to live within walking distance of their synagogues. So yes, they manage to make areas of Jewish scarcity flourish, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the other people in the neighborhood, Jewish or non-Jewish, are going to be very happy with their coming there, and they will even look at some of the things they do and say, oh, they have a, another agenda. So for example, if Orthodox Jews are walking on Shabbat because they don't drive to the synagogue, and in the suburbs you don't often have sidewalks, so where are they walking? On the street, what will the people who don't want them there think about their walking in the street? They're walking on the street to keep us from driving on the streets. We told you we don't want the Brooklynization of our suburbs. So Orthodox Jews have this kind of love-hate relationship with their other Jewish neighbors often, and the tensions are there. Nevertheless, Orthodox Jews have been successful in making areas of Jewish scarcity flourish Jewishly. In the political realm, Orthodox Jews have risen to unprecedented levels of political power. And ironically, because they tend to be voting more and more in the flip side of how the rest of Jewry is voting, they have found that as the, the political right wing has gained more and more influence and power, the Orthodox Jews are now the Jews of choice for those people, as we can see with the current regime in uh, Washington. Uh, even in the last election, the, the current election, 
about 80% of Jews voted for Democrats in the last election, and about 80% of Orthodox Jews voted for the other side. And what is uh, really important is that Orthodox Jews have reached this, these positions of political influence without having to hide their orthodoxy. They can proudly uh, present themselves as orthodox in an America that, at least until recently, we might say until Pittsburgh or until recently, has been much more um, open uh, to orthodox. To, to someone wearing a kippah on the street, if I'm in an airplane and I'm wearing a kippah, I don't have to worry. Uh, so far, I haven't had to worry about what's going to happen to me. Uh, am I going to be thrown off like uh, a Sikh wearing a turban or uh, a Muslim wearing a uh, kafiyah? Orthodox Jews overwhelmingly provide their offspring with full-time religious education in day schools and yeshivas, which they view as the key to continuity. Now, we know, and I've already alluded to that here in passing, that not all Orthodox Jews are alike. Right? There's two kinds of Orthodox there's the orthodox of me and Rabbi Shmuley and some people maybe in this room, what we would might call uh, modern, or I like to call a contrapuntalist, and that's borrowing a, a term from music, that uh, you can play different <laughs> tunes at the same time, right? They don't, they don't have to be in harmony. You can play one tune with, with one foot and one tune with the other foot. That is, you seek engagement with the outside world. You believe you can have a university education. You believe that there's much to be learned from culture that's non-Jewish. Uh, you believe that uh, you can be observant and at the same time be engaged by the world outside. Uh, those, those are sometimes called modern Orthodox Jews. You have general commitments to Torah, to Halakha, to Zionism, to the state of Israel, to Jewish diversity. You don't believe that all shuls have to be Orthodox, that all Jews have to be Orthodox. That, uh, you know, that different strokes for different folks. Uh, you can believe in a changing and an active role for women within Judaism. You don't believe that it's a sin if a woman wants to do things that until now she hasn't been able to do or been called upon to do in Jewish life. Um, uh, you believe in the, or the authority of Orthodox rabbis in matters of religion, but with the consent of the lady. You don't want the rabbis to start giving you things that you have, you, you may do or may not do, but, but without taking into consideration who the people are that they're talking to. Uh, you believe in a knowledge of modern Hebrew. You believe that you can wear modern dress, that God's favorite color might not be black that uh, you can wear technicolor, <clears throat> that uh, you can ski, you can go to the opera, you can uh, read uh, even the poetry of an anti-Semite like Ezra, uh, Ezra Pound. But there has been increasingly a shrinking of this middle road, right? Because we know that what is, what's one of the problems of walking down the middle of the road? You get hit by the traffic going both directions. And on the other hand, there are the people to the right, I mean, the people to the left, there are people who are sort of nominally Orthodox Jews. Those are people who say the synagogue I don't usually go to is an Orthodox one. <laughs> there are fewer and fewer of those kinds of Jews, uh, in part because they understand that Orthodoxy, the, the ante for being in the Orthodox game, is, is risen. You can't just come 
three days a year or in bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. And then there is the other side, the, uh, what, what we might call the traditionalist, or uh, the term that today we use most often is Haredi. Haredi means people who are anxious about Judaism. I guess if we translated it in English, we'd say they're the Quakers and the Shakers, but those terms have been used by other religious groups, so we can't refer to Quaker Jews and Shaker Jews, so we call them Haredi Jews. <clears throat> and they demand what they call a golos anefesh, a sense that you are in America, but you're not of America. You live in an enclave. You're, you, you view America at best as a, a kingdom of kindness, malchut shel chesed. It's often enticing. It's seductive. It's materialistic. It, uh, it, it, um, it's filled with sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and um, you have to stay away from it. Uh, and they also believe that there's only one way of genuinely being Jewish. There's only one right way. One size fits all. And if you don't follow that path, then they have a name for you. They call you a goy, right? And they don't make a distinction between Jewish goyim and non-Jewish goyim. You're either a yid or you're not a yid. And a yid is somebody who does all the things the way they do them, and uh, someone who doesn't, well, he's not. Uh, and they are divided. <clears throat> they're, not, they're not all one. There are the people who are Hasidic. All Hasidim are Orthodox, but not all Orthodox Jews are Hasidic. There are the people who are sometimes called Yeshivish or Litvish. Those are the people I referred to who live in places like Lakewood, New Jersey. There are Mizrahists, people who are <coughs> sort of, uh, of Sephardic origins in a kind of general way, but there's a whole variety of people like that, everything from people from Central Asia, Uzbekistan, Bukharan Jews, for example, and people from, from North Africa, and people of the so-called Eidota Mizrach. There's all of those people, and they often are within this Haredi world as well. In fact... If we look at the current municipal elections in Jerusalem, the candidate of the Haredi right is a man named uh, Leon who comes from, uh, he's, he's, he's one of the Eidota Mizrach. So there is, the, uh, the, there is this kind of, of, of coalition, you might say, of the Haredi or the ultra-Orthodox. And now I want to get to the puzzle. And the puzzle is, or the mystery is, What's happened to orthodoxy? <clears throat> it turns out that there has been a steady slide to the right, to the religious right, to the political right. And it's that story that really is uh, what I wanted to get to, but it's now, <laughs> it's now 647. So the answer is, what do we mean by the slide to the right? And that's a great question. You'll have to read the book to find out what we mean. <laughs> We've just run out of time. <clears throat> but all I can tell you is the result of the slide of the right is that modern orthodoxy hasn't been able to replicate itself. Because when you, uh, if you're in the modern orthodox world and you have spent all of this money and time educating your children and you've sent them to the best day schools and you've sent them to the best universities, you don't expect your son or daughter who comes home from Princeton to say to you, Dad, I've decided to become a teacher in a yeshiva. Wait a minute. 
You didn't go to Princeton for that. I didn't spend all that money sending you to Princeton for that. You're not going to do that. So what do they do? They come home to be doctors and lawyers and financiers and all of those things. And the result is who is teaching in the day schools and the yeshivas that they created in order to sustain themselves. Guess who's teaching in those places? Already. The people who are not, do not necessarily share their ideology. And then just to make sure before they send them to the university, they send them for a year to Israel, to a yeshiva in Israel, and guess who's teaching in those institutions? More of the same. So steadily, the people who have become, become their moral leaders have in some senses, they come from sort of a couple of cliques to the right of them. And so the result is, there's more, much more to say, but we don't have the time. So I, I just want to leave you wanting more. And the answer is, I've written a book that covers pretty much the rest of the story. Yes? I have a question for you. Sure. Let's take this community for a moment. I don't know much about this community, so I can't, I can't tell you. The conservative movement, the yeah. traditional conservative movement, is shrinking. Oh, uh, yeah, because they're in the middle of the road. Right. Um, reform is growing. Not really. They're they're tempor it's temporary growth. Because their kids are not going to go to the reform synagogue. Yeah. We had a president of this reform synagogue yeah. who is president of an orthodox synagogue. Yeah. At the same time? No. Oh. But what happens is, is this whole transition, because my son was raised conservative, he's a member of the Orthodox community, but all his friends who were reformed or whatever have moved over there. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting transition that the current uh, Orthodox community here, and there's a lot of them, right? A lot. Of, you go in Saturday, parking lot is full. Just full. Oh, so they drive through the Orthodox oh, and they go, okay. I so. go anywhere from the Wallon. Okay, so the orthodoxy here is a very unique kind of orthodoxy. Yeah. I wonder if that's the case outside of No, I mean, there are, you can't call yourself orthodox and drive to shul. No, in, New York, I know that. In, most, in most orthodox communities. You can, just can't do that. That's one of the advantages of living here in the periphery of the Jewish world. In the periphery of the Jewish world, you know, in the, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is, uh, is uh, king. So... Uh, uh, yes, yeah, so <clears throat> you can you can play with these definitions here, uh, but you know I, I don't know enough about this yeah, community. Well, let's give somebody else a chance. Yes. Where would you put Chabad? No, Chabad is an interesting movement. I've written. I write another book. I'm here to sell. I'm here to sell books. <laughs> My book on Chabad. I have two books on Chabad. Really, one is the one I'm going to talk about uh, in a few minutes. Uh, who will lead us, but uh, the other is uh, a book called The Rebbe, The Life and the Afterlife of Menachem Mendel Schneerson. I'll say one thing about Chabad. Chabad is a movement led by Hasidim, most of whose followers are neither Hasidic nor Orthodox nor likely to become either one. Uh, so uh, the truth of the matter is that Chabad seems like they're they're succeeding beyond people's wildest imaginations. But um, they're in a different kind. They have a very different uh, model. It's a, it's a very, uh, maybe I'll talk about it more in, in my next talk. It's a very different model of what they do. And uh, actually what they're in the business of doing is collecting Jewish acts, mitzvot. They believe that all of those people who came, for example, to the Chabad house on that particular day, they did a mitzvah. They listen to the Torah, and they believe that at a certain point, when enough, they've been told, when it's enough mitzvot, 
that the, the, the balance is, there are more non-mitzvot than there are mitzvot. When enough mitzvot are done, the balance will be tipped and the day of redemption will come, Mashiach will come, and they want it now. And what they're interested in is getting you to do, they don't know what, they don't know what tomorrow is. Be. The first thing they ask you, excuse me, are you Jewish? You say yes. If you say no, if you say half, they don't like that answer. They can't deal with that. <laughs> <clears throat> so they, they, wanna, they wanna be clear on who is a Jew. You're Jewish, yes. They want you to do a public act of Jewishness, like coming to the synagogue, putting on tefillin in public. Who the hell is going to do that if it's not Jewish? <clears throat> All of those things, and that will transform you. But, um, but there's a whole different story. Yes? Aren't most major religions moving right? Christianity's moved right? The world, the world is divided. It's, you know, there's a very famous saying, in Yiddish, which means as the Christians go, so go the Jews, or uh, as it might be translated in English, Jews are like everybody else, only more so. So the, <laughs> the thing about, about the Jews is it's really like America. America and the world, but certainly in America, America is becoming tribalist, and it, the middle is, there is no middle anymore, right? Uh, there's just no middle. So you're either with us or against us. You're either like us or you're different from us. So yes, the Orthodox Jews and the Jews are a reflection of that. We like to think that somehow we're, we're exceptional. Jews are exceptional. We're not exceptional. We're like everybody else, only more so. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.